Okay, so Dr. Kuntz, you asked me if I'm interested in anything, and you also told me in your your notes to me in Discord that I should talk about my Substack. So <laughs> part of me, I'm interested, like, have you read my Substack? Have you looked at it at all, or has you got too much on your plate? For you know I don't have an internet. I don't have an internet connection, so. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll believe that in, in the day. Uh, so, but I am interested in a lot of things, and, and Substack has provided for me a place to share that. I've spent two to three years now kind of on full retreat from public life, and may, maybe nobody realizes that because I'm doing Brief History of Power, I'm doing YouTube, all that, but I've been pulling way back and asking a lot of questions about things like, what is sin? And, and I don't just mean like the Lutheran Orthodox definition, but but biblically, where did that word come from? Why do we use the word sin and, and not the word like unrighteousness or something like that? So mm-hmm. what is sin? Um, what is wisdom? Uh, and why don't we take Solomon more seriously? Uh, things like, why should I not just read fiction, but write fiction? What good is it? What good is entertainment? All sorts of questions. Uh, more, I mean, I'm working on like a, a paraphrase of Sun Tzu's Art of War. I got a million things I'm interested in. And Substack has provided me a location. Sounds like I'm making a sales pitch for Substack. You should start your own. Substack is provided me a location where I can begin to detail a lot of what I've found or what I believe I've discovered or understand without having to write a book about every single piece. Because a lot of the stuff sat in notes. It's like, well, maybe someday that'll be worthwhile for a book. Dear heavens, I don't want to write books about all this stuff. But what I can do is start trajectories of information, trajectories of thought that over time as series uh, maybe build into something from on fiction. Like what is what good is fiction and also how do you write it uh, to uh, the work on smart noting, you know, kind of summarizing and updating from my part of point of view, Sanka Aaron's mm-hmm. work on, on smart noting. So uh, you can find this, by the way, out there if, if you're interested, uh, revfisk.com, R-E-V-F-S-K.com. Uh, you might have to follow a link there to the actual site. Something to do with the WordPress forwarding still isn't quite able to believe I want it forwarded. And so uh, sometimes it goes directly to the Substack site. Sometimes it doesn't. But um, I'm interested in, in a ton of things uh, in that regard. I'm also publishing my fiction work, Earth, there uh, up to Chapter 3 uh, has been released. And, and it's not quite done, but it's... Uh, it's 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 closer than than it was. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's maybe not the question you were asking. I don't know. Did, did any of those topics uh, track track with your train of thought? I mean, I know wisdom has been something that a couple of years ago you really decided you hadn't given enough attention to. Yeah, as far as brief history of power goes, not exactly because I think what you're doing are sort of higher level analyses, and sometimes what we're doing on this show. It, are those things, but are also making known forgotten things. So one of the one of the series that I have thought of for this coming year, 2023, is recently completely forgotten things. <laughs> so that would that would include a wide variety of things, such as when gay marriage was illegal, or thought a lot about the Las Vegas shooting, try to figure out mm-hmm. what even occurred there. Yeah. So some of those, some of the role of this show is not just that high level stuff, but also, uh, or or maybe even let's say meta analyses, but making known or or making renown things that were never known or or have been nearly, if not entirely, forgotten. Right. So that's where when we started this whole thing, it was like, how do we start putting the modern news cycle? into a long-term perspective so that as Christians, Lutherans specifically, 
we're not just kind of quietist checking out saying Romans 13, but neither are we, you know, mounting an assault on the capital of the United States on January 6th, as if that's what happened. But, but you know, neither are we really, <laughs> yeah, right, really right, right, doing right, that right. either. Right. You know, we're not, right. we're not dissident citizens, we're, but we're good citizens. And, and, you know, I read uh, Nassim Tlaib, I've talked about him before. I read both his Fooled by Randomnish, and then we just, at, at Hebron, we just finished Skin in the Game this past week. And so many good points uh, in in his assessment of asymmetries in life, uh, the limited perspective of not just a man, but of mankind in being able to observe uh, what random events mean and predict for the future to prepare. But anyway... Um, one of the major, uh, major takeaways uh, from those works was the idea that bad information is worse than no information. And as a result, the news cycle is probably making you stupider just because, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, like yeah. there's no way around it. You, you, I just skim the headlines in the morning. That's me. I do. I just skim the headlines in the morning. You know what? It's probably like 50% lies. And the other 50% has no bearing on the rest of my day, except for maybe to make me anxious about, you know, uh, an, an actor pretending to be a, uh, a a president of a of a NATO almost nation while embezzling lots of money into uh, FTX and blah, 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 blah. So, like, what does that have to do with me, right? So I think I think for the coming year, to continue to look at the news is really, really valuable especially to try to put it in the context of uh, where we really are as commoners in an elite man's game and no longer buying into the mythology that we're not commoners, uh, that we're, we're somehow free men. Um, because as Christians, if we're going to retain our faith, we can't practice the mythologies of the people around us. And that's essential, absolutely essential. I would have less of a problem with the news cycle, even as delivered by smartphones continuously, if people had other sources of information and primarily thought in those terms, so if they thought primarily at greater length or they thought primarily through writing things out or other forms of mental, but really these things I think ultimately become spiritual disciplines to use a phrase evangelicals at least used to use before they got into deconstructing themselves, that if those spiritual disciplines were ongoing, then the idea that for five minutes you you look at what this is trying to tell you or something, it, I mean, it gives you a completely different perspective if you're coming at it as this is something that I do for like five minutes, sort of similar to the way that I the way that I floss, although it's probably not even as good for me as flossing between my teeth every day. But it is something I could do and, and it wouldn't matter that much and it wouldn't hurt me and it doesn't take that long. But that is, in fact, not the way that it has worked out in people's lives. So I think sometimes I am reluctant to share this podcast with people I know, not because I'm worried. I, you know, I, I said something they they can't understand or or something like that, but but because I'm asking them to to think and to use their brains and to reflect on what we're saying. And they may have become incapable of that, you know, for lack of a better phrase. So uh, I, I, I don't, I don't incline to the idea that, you know, like 
my smartphone is the reason for everything that's gone wrong. And, and the news cycle is the reason for everything that's gone wrong. The news cycle has been ongoing, at least in Western countries, for more than 200 years easily. But it's it, it would be so much less of a problem if we didn't if, – if that news cycle were not being poured into brains that are so corroded and then are further corroded by that manner of receiving the world – Basically, so I, I, you know, going. I mean, the the reason to dig up forgotten things, or to do meta analyses, or to go into a world of fiction that is not untruthful. It's simply not tethered to real world facts in the same way that, say, history is. But they often serve roughly the same purpose. Honestly, to teach and to delight is the purpose of both history and fiction, anciently. To do that is to go somewhere else. It's it's almost like traveling. And a lot of times people today, to just continue this analogy, it's like they barely even open their front doors, let alone leave the neighborhood, let alone leave the county, the state, or the country. They don't go anywhere mentally, that is spiritually. So their spirits become very cramped and small. And you can really tell that someone is really obsessed with the news cycle because they will they will begin very openly when they do talk about things, not really assessing their truth value, but assessing their emotional impact on some presumptive herd. So can you believe this outrageous or, can, you know, the... Look at this guy with his weird ideas. You know, these are all expressions of fear by small minded people who never go anywhere. So, two things that bother me about, again, not necessarily the news cycle, not yeah. necessarily the technology, although I still hold in the back of my head like a 5% is black magic. Maybe demons are involved just because, but um, let's say they're not and it's all materialism all the time. Yeah, sure. Um, Addiction and cult thinking. Those two things playing together within the society has been what's taken it from being a news cycle to something likened to a global religion. And this this cultic approach, and again, how did it achieve this? Because the technology is addictive itself. So now, in order to defend your addiction, you must parrot the lines of the, the divine leaders who tell you what to think. You cannot think for yourself. So you end up being in the cult, and if you try to retreat from the cult, um, then you're going to be shunned, and you'll find that very quickly if you really do you know, turn off these things. Um, yeah. That seems to be a, a leveling up. If not, like like it was never there before, I don't know enough history to know that it was never there before. Um, but it didn't seem to be as pervasive yeah, to I, daily yeah, life. I, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, pervasive is the issue. It's not no one no one is trying to discover novelty in human behavior. You know, the the only reason that things are novel to us is because we forget them. But there is a distinction among the times between how pervasive something may be widespread or unknown or hidden it may be. And that that does vary widely, especially when you're talking about human behaviors. So I think when you're you know talking about being caught up in the news cycle, 
that's that's always existed. It's just that rather than having your mind controlled in a you know all pervading way in your life by the opinion of your fellow villagers, your mind is controlled by someone who lives far away from you right. and writes the Netflix shows that you consume compulsively. Uh, and then you talked about the the locking thing is yeah. the, the time to ponder, the time to consider, certainly reflecting through writing, uh, not for publication, right? But but just no, to reflect, right? right? Yeah. And what I also think then it goes hand in hand with that is how these these machines have gradually moved us into being a populace that thinks in pictures rather than in in words. Oh, it's horrible. And and that is to me like the definition of barbarian. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then and then what people will tell themselves, which which is what people tell themselves at any time, but the reason the reason I sighed as soon as you said that was because the reason that it's horrible is not that words are everything or that there are not other forms of thought that are very helpful in human life. It is because words are constitutive of civilization anywhere civilization exists. And the question then is how extensive you want those words to be, how much you want the words to do. So an alphabet is going to do more for you and it's going to do more for more people than a pictographic system of some kind, a hieroglyphic system of some kind. So we have a very flexible alphabet spread through particularly the action of the British Empire and then American world supremacy thereafter throughout the globe, a way to communicate really well and very flexibly. It can do lots of things. For most non-native speakers, it's it's just a utilitarian tool. For native speakers of English or any other language, it does beautiful things and, and soulful things. People cannot express themselves anymore. I mean, I, I defy you to get a book of letters written by a Civil War private, you know, some guy that is that is a farmer that has a fifth or sixth grade education in 1862 and see the kinds of things he's able to write home. And it doesn't mean that absolutely everyone was like that, but it means that the average run-of-the-mill person had much greater capacities of expression of beauty and delight and misery and horror than most people do. And that's all enabled by words. It's it's not magical in the sense that it's gone and it'll never come back again, which is I, I think a lot of people, partly because they don't know anything about the past, think about the past really like children think about where you are in the room when they cover their eyes. You know, so if they have their eyes covered, you're not there anymore. <laughs> You know, and they only think that because they're naive or they don't understand, you know, how occupying space works. A lot of people think about history that way and they think that, well, that's gone or that was then, this is now. There were people with horrible spelling. I mean, Joseph Smith was one of them. If you look at his little key to some of the writing of what he called Reformed Egyptian, the Anthon manuscript or transcript, he misspells the word characters. You know, 
So there was bad spelling. I mean, people are people, like we say. But the pervasiveness of a complete incapacity to express oneself, no, that was that was not nearly so widespread as it is today, where people think in in pictures, like you say. OMG, I just can't even, you know. So. <laughs> well, and it's it's also set because when you have words, right? You can you can say your own things. Yeah. But when you have pictures or you have moving pictures, you are saying whatever the person that made that picture a moving picture is saying. Those are the only things available to you. And and that that's slavery. I mean that that's a slavery of soul that doesn't actually have its equal in being economically enslaved, although they're often related to each other. They are today. But the idea that you are so enslaved that you don't have your own words. I mean, you know, what is what is your life at that point? Your life is, you know, it's it's whatever Netflix is going to make of it. Yeah, consumption. Consumption like a battery in the machine. Uh, so in the news, I am interested in at least two things that I'm curious yes, on your takes on. One of them mm-hmm. is uh, Hobbs versus Lake in Arizona, uh, continuing to be turned into a court battle. And the other one, and you can pick your flavor here, is uh, okay. uh, Mr. Governor DeSantis going straight at Fauci and and getting a little getting a little loud about the misinformation of misinformation in the last few years with some legal yeah. action. So both of those seem to me to be dim rays of light in a very dark landscape that may or may not achieve ultimate goods, but but I'm glad yeah. for leaders who are not complete cowards. So what do you think? Arizona is an interesting case for for two reasons. One one being that the idea that we are still trying to adjudicate an election and we're looking at we're looking at twenty twenty three, the listeners know that I mean that happened in Florida for the presidency of the United States under very different technological conditions, I might add. Mm. And because of legal machinations, which were incredibly convoluted because of what was at stake, to be the governor of sort of a mid-sized purplish state of, you know, with no offense whatsoever to listeners in Arizona, not incredibly particular note. I mean, Arizona is not California, so or Texas. This this is a this is kind of a new impasse. There have always been doubts that people had about elections in democracies. I think we said earlier in the year that this is in the nature of a system that when a system is threatened, what will be threatened is is generally or most frequently or most saliently the thing essential to it. So succession in a monarchy, electoral probity and integrity in a democratic system or situation of some kind, the truly representative nature of representatives in a Republican system, whatever the case may be, right? And so the fact that it's still open or that, you know, this or that Maricopa County judge hasn't yet decided that it, that is that is pretty significant that we're just leaving these things open. I mean, the Brazilians are in the same place, but if you had thought 10 years ago that we would be in the same place as Brazil in any kind of way, 
I mean, I think most of us would have thought you were you were kind of crazy. I mean, Banana Republic was invented for places that America intervenes in, not for America. I mean, nobody said Florida was a Banana Republic. That was supposed to be true of other places. So that's significant. We had battles like this in courts over elections during Reconstruction in the South. And the reason that we had those battles in places like Arkansas or Mississippi or South Carolina, it we had or Florida, is because we had people that knew that they didn't want to physically fight with each other. This is where I'm not entirely sure about the coming American Civil War narrative or or meme. Maybe it's just a meme. It's not even a story yet. They knew they didn't want to fight with each other again, not in not in any kind of hot war. So they they prosecuted that battle in the courts and they prosecuted it extensively and they they fought to win at every stage. The reason being they knew that a regime that was run mainly by northern republicans and black republicans would not at all be the same regime as one run by white southern democrats. So both sides fought to the death in that case. So what this is telling you is that we are somehow Maybe we even went through some kind of enormous shift in life, such as the American South went through during the Civil War, and now we're fighting over the remnants of it. I'm not saying that as like a, you know, like we 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 actually fought a war or something. I'm saying that like often in America, partly because of our geographic isolation, we suffer the effects of war without fighting wars. Our, our wars get fought in soft or cold ways. So, you know, the the level of overdose deaths in the United States now picking up among minorities, it was supposed to be sort of a, a poor white phenomenon maybe five years ago. Those, those levels of death or rise in mortality rates among certain populations, they're so high. It, it is as if we fought a war. <laughs> or our population has has changed so drastically, it is as if we fought a war and all kinds of people were moved around. So we're dealing with a situation where I think the reason that Arizona is there is because we cannot stand each other, but we cannot stand, you know, let's say sterner consequences of really not being able to live with each other. And But that's why we're still fighting to the death. We're recording this December 15th, 2022, and that's still ongoing. The other thing to say is is the continual use of women as figureheads in the Republican Party. Isn't that a thing? It's such a thing. And I, I think part of that is a function of media consumption, that it's kind of a celebrity culture thing. I mean, that you could go all the way back to Nixon complaining about how John F. Kennedy was kind of stupid, but he was always going to win a, a TV debate because he was so much better looking than Nixon. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Uh, Nixon, obviously one of our smartest presidents, but the, the, the role of women as figureheads in the Republican party is that women are, are really one of the few constituencies. This is, this has to do with certain things that we've talked about before in the show, but they're one of the few constituencies that are allowed to project themselves in a certain way that conveys strength without alloy. They don't have to pretend to be nice about things something and obviously trump does that and that that irks a lot of people 
So if you are a black Republican, you can say things a white Republican can't say. If you're a female Republican, you can say things a male Republican can't say. That is that is part of it. Another part of it is that the Republican Party has its own internal crises, state by state by state, level by level by level. And that's generally masked from the public. But there are old girls clubs, if you will, within certain party apparatuses, the way that back in the day and to the horror, apparently, of all right thinking people, there were old boys clubs. And that's a reality among, quote, conservatives, just like it is among liberals. So you have a sort of identity, like there's a sort of uh, woman of hardened visage, maybe between 45 and 55, relentlessly career woman, has some kids, whatever type of a person that appears in both parties at this point. And that's where you can see that a lot of the distinctions or the things about the nature of change in the family that you would think would be at the heart of differences in quote culture wars, most of that has been conceded by everybody. Right. So I'm I'm really not surprised that like the recent Respect for Marriage Act was supported by various Republicans, including one of the very few Missouri Synod Lutherans in Congress, Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming. I'm not surprised by that at all. Not just because women vote completely differently than men of both parties, at least historically of both parties, women vote very differently from men, with the exception of married women who are married to a single man. You know, they're they're not they're not on their fourth marriage or whatever. Yeah, I am I here? I I can't believe this is even true. I'm hearing you right. There's an LCMS member in Congress. It's not a man. It's a woman. She's from Wyoming, of all the places. I mean, Liz Cheney is also from Wyoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah but LCMS Wyoming. I mean, this is like the, the bastion, <laughs> right? <laughs> they, who's her pastor? How is she voting for? I, I'm, I am half tongue in cheek as I say this, but I mean, golly, is the irony thick on that? Golly. So what she's yeah. So I, I pulled up her statement. She's a senator. I'm sorry. Liz Cheney is the rep from Wyoming. Wyoming is confusing because there's only one rep. So it's like you have three senators or whatever, or you have three reps, or I don't even know that what is it is. Weird. Anyway, U.S. Senator, this is her office. Uh, voted in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act after an amendment ensuring religious liberty protections for people in Wyoming was adopted. Well, that doesn't that doesn't make it right. It just means that you're allowed to say it's wrong. And after she and Kirsten Cinema conducted a colloquy on the legislation to ensure courts interpret the Respect for Marriage Act, she says, quote, as a Christian and a conservative, of course, ensuring that the religious liberties of people in Wyoming are protected and that no institution would be forced to perform a ceremony that is not aligned with their values is absolutely essential. Apparently, this is understood as some sort of religious liberty thing. Because she says at the end of this quote, additionally, the Wyoming Constitution protects the political equality of all people. And I believe this legislation is in line with that protection. So the issue here is the in total incapacity to see any distinction between marriage and like your right not to be like plowed over by a truck as you walk down the sidewalk. Like there's no difference in access to those goods. Like if you're allowed to walk down the sidewalk and not get plowed over by a truck randomly without any consequences, then you should also be allowed to marry whomever or whatever you want to. Yeah, whatever is key there.
Yeah. And so I think what you're what you're dealing with here is that female leadership in the Republican Party or or gay leadership increasingly. Mm-hmm. Um go go take a look, especially at the state level where it's it hasn't yet risen to the top. That is a reality where you can see that this is not just a like, oh, it's a uniparty, they all vote for the same stuff, blah, blah, blah. It's all about corporate money. Sure, thank you. I remember Occupy Wall Street too. In addition to that, you can see that the things that are actually like concretely matter day to day in people's lives, like who are you married to? Is there somebody that I call mom and dad who are stable figures in my life? Will mom and dad still be together in however many years, et cetera? All of that has been conceded. Mom could be a Republican political operative and have nothing to do with me and her career would survive. So these kinds of things are, I think, significant. So Hobbs v. Lake, I don't know. Who knows how it's going to turn out? Who knows what's going on in Pima County, Maricopa County? The fact of who the combatants are matters at least as much as the fact that they're still combating this election, you know, a month and a half on. Now, to push back just a touch here, um, yeah. we've been kind of advocating, at least at one point, maybe in the last couple of months, that the way the Democratic machine has succeeded is by becoming a coalition mm-hmm. of groups that really don't agree about significant things, but mm-hmm. they agree enough about not being Republican that they're able to work together for a right. certain goal. Right. So can we see everything we just talked about as fitting under that kind of, I don't want to call it a strategy as if we're doing it on purpose, but I mean, don't we have to kind of coalesce with those who are going to disagree with us on pretty significant things? Yeah. Uh, if we're going to say, um, I don't know, we'll protect religious liberty. Yeah, the problem there is that the nature of being so this is in terms of the political spectrum, not talking about not zooming like all the way out and saying like it shouldn't even exist, but just you're asking a question about political operation or tactics and you know, so just accepting that it exists, right? The problem here is that within a the political spectrum exists because of the existence of essentially anti-Christian modern regimes of different kinds, explicitly so and governmentally so a regime in the case of the French Revolution, which is the origin of the spectrum as a as a modern reality. There are parties, obviously, in other places and other situations at other times, the spectrum concept, left, right, and so forth with gradations along that political spectrum. That's That's from the French Revolution. The right then is always tasked with some different relationship to the past than the left. And the left has a very great attachment to the future, some various imagined futures that the right doesn't have. So the problem here is that if Republicans are living in a way and and existing and then organizing and then getting out votes and, and everything that political organizations do in a way that has already conceded certain things and said, well, that's just in the past. Like in the, in the past, it was like that. And in the past, you know, whatever, then this, this is why they disappoint you all the time, Republican voter, because they don't, they don't, they don't know how 
to relate to the past in the way that a right-wing party is supposed to relate to the past. Hmm. They only know how to relate to the present. So they'll take the same talking points, liberty, and then they'll apply them to the present. And Cynthia Lummis can't see her way clear to thinking in the present whether liberty to engage in some kind of activity that people used to both criminalize and hide, not in the distant past, probably in her lifetime, I'm sure, okay? She can't see how that's not the same thing as like the liberty to, I don't know, not be taxed too much. Can't see the difference. Doesn't know the difference. Doesn't really know what liberty is. So that's the problem here is that Republicans or any right-wing party under any such Christian Democrats, the national front in France, cannot relate to the past in the same way and, and its ways and its values, which are, in the case of all of these countries, Christian, cannot relate to the past in the same way that a left-wing party does, where the left-wing party can say, we don't have anything in common anymore. <laughs> okay. Nobody goes to church. We even we don't even barely speak the same language in certain places. But we can all agree that we want more stuff from a larger government. And that doesn't even have to be monetary. It could be social goods. It could be recognition. It could be validation. It could be legalization, whatever. But we want more stuff from a larger government. That vision is infinitely expandable into the future. As long as you have stuff to run a government, you can build up that coalition. So maybe eventually they can hive off, you know, all the, and, and they, they largely have hived off, you know, otherwise liberal suburban moms who maybe voted Republican before 2016 because they liked low property taxes or something. Those those ladies are largely out of the if you are if you are a woman and you are voting Republican now and you don't, you know, work for your state GOP, you are probably just as vastly more conservative than the people that you're voting for as your husband is. And that reality is is why Republicans always disappoint their voters. There's there's insincerity there for sure. Yeah. I mean you don't need Project Veritas to tell you that obviously the Republican Party doesn't care maybe outside of Texas or Arizona nearly as much about the southern border as Republican voters in every single state in the union care about the southern border and immigration of all kinds generally. they don't. Obviously, they don't care, obviously. But the reason that even when they tell you they're going to care about something that they don't is because they have absolutely no incentive to do so. You're voting for them. You're supporting them. You're donating to them, regardless of what they say or do, which that is completely different from the Democratic Party and doesn't have to do with the left-right political spectrum. That's just a piece of foolishness for which we ourselves are to blame. So let's do DeSantis now and the COVID attack. Yeah, DeSantis and COVID, he reappointed his state doctor, Ladipo, who was out front being you know, anti-requisite anti, anti mask anti-requisite vaccine. To be clear, those things were still available in Florida, just like Trump said that, you know, we should get this vaccine. 
DeSantis is coming out partly because it's safer to be so vociferous. I mean, I I don't think DeSantis is like cowardly or something, but it's easy to be that angry against COVID now because what you know pre Elon Musk were called blue checks. <laughs> they uh, even they're on Twitter, you know, apologizing for talking about mandatory lockdowns. So there's there's a certain political ease here. But I think I think the anger is partly because DeSantis is trying to set up a distinction from Trump, which he does have of achieving things against targets popular on the right. I'm not saying that cynically. And the big difference there is that as we talked about in some of the political episodes about Florida, is that Florida is not only interesting because of its population and the population shifts and then the political shifts caused by those things. It's also interesting because it's a rare example of coherent, ongoing conservative resistance. So DeSantis has something that Trump never really had, which is a favorable operating environment, not in his local media or anything like that, but he has a favorable operating environment. He has plenty of people who can do things for him, whom he can trust. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's almost like a little, like a political sandbox for certain ways of talking or, or operating of governing that doesn't exist on a national scale because Trump could never have that level of trust. I mean, uh, just apart from other differences between the two men, Trump could never operate with that level of trust in the people around him. Because the people around him are largely employed by three-letter agencies, right? And, yeah, and right. That, yep. that seems to be who the actual government is and all this stuff. So, Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and DeSantis is operating in an environment that is a lot more like Texas than it yeah. is. I mean, yeah. So what I like about it, though, I mean, and it is, it's so late. It's stuff that we knew two years ago, but the, the validation factor on um, what these inoculations have done to people, uh, I don't I don't know that we're going to really get the day in court that, that is deserved. Um, but what, what I want, what I hope for, yeah. is that uh, just a few more people out there will wake up you know, from, they'll, they'll get a sniff of this sniff of something that wasn't out there. You know, Bill Maher uh, had uh, Richard Dawkins on his, his show, random something, something. And, and Bill Maher is this, you know, kind of classically liberal comedian, uh, scoffing at the right wing for years and years, but who in the last two years has been sort of a little more willing to uh, be based, to, to use that term. And Richard Dawkins uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, the atheist atheist and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, some would call him a pseudo intellectual, but, you know, very, very heavy on the mandatory vaccine kind of stuff. And. Uh, uh, Bill Maher just just called him on it, and and Dawkins accuses him of being anti-science. This and he's like, "Have you heard of the Barrington De- Declaration?" And Dawkins hadn't heard about it. He'd never heard about it, and, right. and because of the censorship issue that, that Twitter and others did, and uh, and to have that kind of embarrassment on national TV to someone that like, no, you really you're in such a hole that you don't know what's going on. I just hope that a few others then poke their head out of the hole and start looking around. Uh, not because I think we're going to get a magical Christmas land of Christendom, you know, uh, national 
rising up or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but for those individuals themselves, uh, that if they have been injured, they stop denying it to themselves, uh, that if they, uh, they have young children, they stop putting them at, at jeopardy for things that really need not be considered risks. Uh, just, just general humanitarian wise, I, I want, yeah, right. I want good <laughs> to come of this. So yeah. that's what I like about the DeSantis, uh, stuff right now, specifically that he's going that direction. Um, even though of course, any, any, uh, Republican out there could be louder than they are, I think, by and large. For the sake of the larger population, the idea of emergent dissent from the regime is pretty important if you look at the history of regimes similar to ours, where truth is tightly controlled, intellectuals are tightly controlled, academia is a means of reinforcement for those things. If you look at the history of communist regimes and one that, that we will be looking at um, in the coming year or kind of two in, let's say, contrast to each other are Hungary and East Germany. And those, those two regimes, just as paradigms, display this gradual change in the population where in both cases, you get uprisings in the 1950s to overthrow the regime. So you're talking within roughly 10 years of communism becoming the official state way of operating. After which you have a long period of clear repression. What's eventually going to change in both cases is something that, you know, I don't know if we're actually there, if you think of this as perhaps a semi-standard timeline for the way that mass movements operate, either mass movements of repression or mass movements of liberation or or whatever, is that you gradually get mental shifts that are not really entirely due to media. So if you watch a documentary about the fall of Berlin Wall or something, the media will, when it tells you about its own role in history, will generally exaggerate itself. The role of direct observation and then of shaping your life according to your direct observation, which is requires that reflection that we mentioned earlier. That is enormous and is what produces these sort of emergent properties in large groups of people who, in the case of East Germany, began to congregate in churches, not really of the church, but in a space afforded by churches for movements that were apparently about the environment or apparently about nuclear weapons or apparently about other things originally and then became forums for discontent and forums for marches and 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 lots of other things all of that happens in a way that is a little bit mysterious but relies on growing collective awareness and then discussion of that growing collective awareness because obviously in the case of Warsaw Pact countries in the 1980s, you're, you're not dealing with internet communication or <laughs> really a lot of non-personal communication. So when those things exist, I'm hopeful. I'm not hopeful if it's a series of news stories that then disappear into the ether or are remembered by already extant political factions that 
are political just in the sense that they have certain like mental alignments, not in the sense that they do anything. So I, I, I think it would be wonderful if more people thought much more deeply and then wisely really about vaccination, full stop, not just COVID vaccination, but they have to talk to each other and organize with each other in order for that to accomplish something long-term. And they have to do it on a very large scale. So I'm not saying that like uh, it's not going to happen. I'm saying that like in a mass society, those are the things that are required, right? Like the reason Lula is still not quite president of Brazil is because of a mass movement. It's not because there's like three guys on the internet somewhere in, you know, Sao Paulo who have figured out what was done that was dirty and how Bolsonaro actually won or something. I mean, that doesn't actually matter if you know the truth, but you are not organized. I don't know if that was meant to be an advertisement for the Mad Christian Discord and the Brief History Power Channel or not. Uh, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> no, all seven of us of. in there, we know what's going on. But uh, the question is, you know, how do you how do you make it big? How do you make it real? Right. Uh, man, that that that's its own that's its own beast. Um, uh, side thought here: Did you hear about this one? I want to say it was the Philippines, but I could be wrong about this. Uh, it is definitely an Asian country, and I believe it is an Islamic base. Has outlawed adultery. Did you hear about this? Indo- Indonesia. Indonesia. There it is. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, it is a thing. What's going on there is that Indonesia is transitioning from a clearly secular, so to speak, democracy, having been before that a secular dictatorship under Suharto into now something that is more, much more openly Islamist. And this, this pertains rather closely, to be honest with you, to the growth of what is now called seemingly mostly, and I think originally entirely, by its opponents, Christian nationalism. And that has to do with the influence of a population's religious beliefs on its political life. Indonesia is, by sheer population, the world's largest Muslim country. So it's it has more Muslims than Saudi Arabia or anywhere else that you can imagine that you think of as much more Muslim, just because it has so many people. And it has plenty of people who are not Muslim. So it's got, it's got Hindus, you know, famously in Bali, it's got Hindus. The surfers are there with the Hindus. It's got Christians. It's got a sort of a Lutheranist church there called the Batak church. So it's got lots of people. It's got more Muslims than any other single country. What has changed is that when you allow things to operate in a, in a way that is in any sense actually democratic, meaning reflective of the people's desires, right? Rule by the people, democracy. Then you're probably going to end up with something a lot more religious than if you had rule by the elites. So if you contrast this with America, right? <laughs> we, we have shifted from being a country <laughs> where Anthony Comstock runs around after the Civil War and says, we got to outlaw contraception by mail. We can't do this. This is horrible. And that just happens. Okay. Because 
practically everyone is, you know, everyone is by comparison today, a, a ragingly conservative Protestant or, you know, in the, certainly in the cities, a very conservative Roman Catholic. So that happens. That's not really definitively overturned as a principle that you have access to whatever you want until the late 1960s. So now where are we? I mean, we're we're in a situation where it's not just that things happen and are publicly funded and are and are publicly promoted that like most people don't want. You know, so do most people in Wyoming want their senator to their senator and their rep? I don't I don't know what their others are. I think it's a man, but I don't know his name. Did they want her, those those women to support the, quote, Respect for Marriage Act? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, Western states tend to be pretty libertarian, but, but still probably not. And it, it's not just that the majority of people wouldn't want that. It's that things are publicly funded, promoted, called good. They're actually better than you. That nobody wants <laughs> like no nobody nobody was asking 10 years ago not even in san francisco for drag queen story hour nobody <laughs> nobody wanted that like and i they didn't even know they didn't want it they just it didn't exist and no one cared so then it gets pushed and pushed and but that's how you know you live under a changed regime because you go from a situation where the predominantly, because this is kind of normal for human societies, the predominantly religious, conservative, and familially oriented nature of man, whatever the religion is, however many wives are in the family, but people want the best for their kids. They want to see their grandkids. There are certain ways to make that happen. There are other ways you could build life that don't make that happen at all. But most people left to their own devices are probably going to want things like that. So, you know, they're going to turn out to be fairly religious of whatever kind. If that goes away, well, now you know you don't live in a democracy because nothing that anyone, not even just some minority as measured on any given issue, nobody wants this stuff. Now, now they are taught that they're supposed to want it or they're taught that it's good or they're taught that it's moral, but... 10 years ago, nobody was like, yeah, we need this. People were saying that about whatever, different kinds of health insurance. Or they were saying that about uh, the nature of funding for private schools. Sure, I would expect those things to change in a regime in any way, electorally or otherwise, responsive to its own people. You would not expect life to change utterly radically day to day unless you were going through regime change, which is, I think, precisely what we have been and, and what we are going through. So, I mean, that just leads me to think about, we got about eight minutes left here. Think about uh, um, Brandon, as some are calling him, I believe, I believe Joe Biden is his actual name, and his uh, continued mental decline. Um, you know, he is the face of the regime. He is not the regime. 
what is the real regime? Uh, what comes next? You know, I and maybe slightly yeah. connected to this, uh, I listened to, I didn't get listened to all of it, but about a, 10 minutes of a talk by uh, a guy named, um, or he goes by the handle of Academic Agent. Uh, yeah. And he was speaking in, in Britain and he was talking about the three different kind of spheres that are vying for global power. Uh, and only one of them would be directly the Biden regime and military industrial complex of America, the, yeah. you know, we police the world stuff, uh, post-World War II agenda. The, they are working with, but working against your, your Silicon Valley, um, environmentally friendly WEF globalist, eat the bugs, be happy, um, new world order. Uh, and then I can't remember what his third one was, uh, that he kind of said, you know, they're losing, they're going to be gone anyway soon. Um, but how these, all three of them are, are functionally aiming in the same direction, kind of like, you know, you get three cars in a race and they don't want the guy behind them to get to win. So they kind of block him off, but at some point they're going to break because not all three of them can win. And so at some point they're going to have to really, uh, push the other guy aside. But in the meantime, you know, central bank digital currency maybe helps everybody. And so... Certainly passports, vaccine passports help help everybody. Uh, so I don't know, thoughts about that and just in in the context of the question really being, you know, the current regime, you say we're in a regime change, what is the current regime? What is its real agenda for us um, beyond, you know, obviously getting rid of Christianity, the diabolically under, underbelly of the whole thing? Right. The, the objective of the current regime, it was at one point, maintenance of actual dominance, especially as over against the Soviet Union. That that was an anchor. And that is why people who grew up, I, not, who, not just who were born before the fall of the Soviet Union, but who grew up, who came to maturity before that time, have a different reaction to modern events than people born since that time. Because our regime really needed an opposition from communism in order not to slide into the very same sorts of destruction and self-destruction that it has now that that opposition has disappeared. Because our regime was not specifically devoted to things to which Certainly pre-World War I, which is why we spent so much time on World War I this year, pre-World War I were givens for Western societies. So everything from the role of Christianity in public life, informal, but perhaps still more pervasive in the United States of America than places where it was formally established, a devotion to inherited forms of government and their maintenance, even the sense that nations had some sort of ongoing historic existence. And so that's why America had immigration debates for the same reasons that Britain and Ireland had debates about what their relationship was, because there was a sense that this is who we are and this can't really change or we won't exist anymore. All of that dissipates the less opposition, those regimes, those Western regimes particularly, have from things that are clearly antithetical to them such as communism. So over time, our regime really has nothing more to resist and certain other, let's say, logics 
that were operative in American life, like materialism or an, an obsession with one's own well-being to the exclusion of everyone else or lots of other things can just can sort of take over life as well as the ideological priorities, which is what we see maybe on like a media level or in Drag Queen Story Hour, where nobody asked for it, but someone may have agitated for it somewhere deep within a political apparatus. And so now we all have to deal with it because we are being governed by a state to which we conceded absolutely enormous power over life in order first to win two world wars and then in a very ongoing way to win the Cold War. And it's still enormous and it's in more parts of life than ever before and it doesn't want to go away by itself. The hope that I that I take on the basis of that is that Biden to me is a sign much like the very late Soviet characters we discussed, I don't know, feels like eons ago, such as Andropov and other characters like that, that pop up for a couple of years in the Soviet Union in the late 70s and the early 80s. The reason being they have served their time as Biden has. I mean, he's been the senator from MBNA for ever. You know, he's been in Congress for 50 plus years at this point. Congress or executive branch, 50 plus years. He exists basically just as a reflection of the regime. So when there were still conservative Democrats or, or Delaware was a vaguely Southern state, Biden was against forced integration through busing in public schools. That was in the 70s. In the 80s and 90s, he was very, very anti-crime. Well, so was Bill Clinton. So was Hillary Clinton. Now he believes that, you know, whatever the Levine character's name is, who goes by Rachel and is the health and human services secretary, that that's like beautiful and wonderful and and so brave. He just reflects whatever the regime does. So if you think about him, not so much as a, <laughs> you know, a specific human being or something, but more as like a sign of the times, then he really is a good stand-in for our formerly vigorous, now confused and geriatric regime. I mean, what 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 wakes people up every day and and tells them that they need to show up to work at the at the CIA or that they need to enlist in the Marine Corps. The only reason that you could do that without a shred of irony in defense of the United States of America is if you have no idea what's going on. If you have some idea, you know, the idea that you're doing that is is just suicidal. I mean, what? why would you do that? That's not a place that's defending America. So I see, I see Biden as a sign of something imminent. I'm not looking forward to what is imminent in an unmixed way. You know what I mean? Like living in Russia in 1993 was like not the best place in the world to be. <laughs> but coming from a place that was deindustrialized before I was born, I mean, I'm not sure it can be a whole lot worse than that was. So, but that that that's going to be a shock for a lot of people to suddenly be in a place that is that is being openly and obviously hollowed out. Your women rule over you, and infants are your kings. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us. You wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. 
Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. Hebrewandcollegian.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find... God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.